Good everybody, this is Propaganda Anonymous and you are tuned in to the Propanon Podcast. Open your fucking ears, jackass. The Troubles. The Troubles. The Troubles. Something about that term sounds interesting. The Troubles. It sounds like a minor inconvenience of some sort. Like it should be used for referencing when you had trouble starting your car before work this morning. Or you had trouble finding your keys or your coat. It sounds like, again, something that is not really a big deal. However, when the term the troubles was and is applied to the 30-year-plus dirty war that occurred in the north of Ireland and beyond from the 60s to the 90s, the term the troubles makes the word euphemism sound like a euphemism. A better word for that period of time might have been the horror. It was a horrible situation for everyone involved. One individual who reported on the ground during the Troubles was my guest today, Ed Maloney. Ed Maloney is an award-winning Irish journalist best known for his coverage of the Troubles in the north of Ireland. He was a reporter covering them, as I said, on the ground for such periodicals as Hibernia, McGill, the Irish Times, and the Sunday Tribune. He's written three books, Paisley, about Ian Paisley. The book is called Paisley, From Demigod to Democrat, what a question mark, because was Paisley ever a Democrat? The second book was The Secret History of the IRA, and his third book was Voices from the Grave, which was made into an award-winning documentary of the same name. So when it comes to the dogged path of journalism, Maloney has earned his stripes as a sleuth for truth. He has risked both his reputation and his life numerous times over his career in order to provide some reliable information during the Troubles in what was and still remains something so cloaked in uneasy mystery. Maloney's long career chronicling this period of time is worthy of many interviews, but I was happy just to have him for one. So join me here as we talk with Ed Maloney, award-winning Irish journalist and author of the great book, The Secret History of the IRA. Let's go. You know, I found so much when it comes to the troubles in Irish history that one needs to constantly unpack and contextualize present circumstances through the long view of history. In other words, one does not really get a full understanding of the troubles uh, if one doesn't know about the, the long uh, history of imperialistic invasion of Ireland by the British dating back to at least the 1500s. So uh, Mr. Maloney, uh, thank you for joining me today. And uh, just to get the wheels turning, um, could you just briefly describe, as difficult as that is, uh, what the troubles were? Well, you know, funnily enough, <clears throat> America and uh, what became the troubles in Northern Ireland have a very very close uh, and strong link. Um, at the same time that the English government under the Stuart monarchy was beginning to explore the idea of setting up colonies in what became the United States, places like Virginia, uh, they were also having to decide what to do about what they described or what they 
thought of as the Irish problem, which was much closer to them. And the problem with the, the Irish problem was that, uh, that it was there uh, on the, the uh, western flank of, um, of, uh, of England. Uh, it was sympathetic to other European nations like uh, uh, France and Spain, who were all Catholic. Ireland itself was Catholic. Uh, England was, a, by that stage, a solidly Protestant monarchy. And Ireland was regarded as a, a possible source of, of trouble, and, you know, maybe a place where foreign powers like uh, France and, and Spain would use as a jumping off board to get into to England and then to go down to London and capture, capture the, the capital city and, you know, overthrow the monarchy. Because you have to remember, at the closest point between Ireland and uh, if you want to call it the British mainland, is in the north of Ireland. There's a, a gap of something like 10 or 15 miles, that's all. I mean, an army would be able to cross, having landed, let's say, further down in the south or the west of Ireland and made its way up to the north, would be able to cross over in a two or three hours, and then, you know, the route would then be down to London, and, you know, who, who knows what could happen after that. So it was extraordinarily important for... Um, the, the English government to pacify Ireland, or to, to control it in some way, to make sure that it wasn't this sort of base, was not going to be a threat to them. And this was happening at the same time as um, as England was uh, setting up colonies in, the, in what became the United States in America. And they decided that the best way to solve the problem in Ireland was to do what they were doing in America, which was to export its people and set up plantations there, just like they did in Virginia. Then they did exactly the same in Ireland. They sent over people from areas in England and Scotland that they knew would be loyal to them. In other words, these were Protestants, uh, some of them Presbyterians, some of them uh, Anglicans, send over to Ireland, uh, give them land that belonged to the native Irish, and build up a you know, a population that would be loyal and could be depended upon to uh, rise up and defend England if there was that type of invasion, which the English always feared from Spain or France, one that would, let's say, start in the west of Ireland and Galway area or down in Cork and then make its way up to what is now Lan and cross over. Well, if they had this plantation there, this plantation of people, uh, then they could at least hold that... Um, invasion long enough to mobilize against it. And funnily enough, one of the very first boats that was uh, uh, commandeered to send over people from England and Scotland to begin the plantation uh, in Northern Ireland, what became Northern Ireland, uh, was diverted to Virginia. And that's how the plantation in Virginia started. So the links between America, the history, early history of America, and uh, and Ireland are, are you know they overlap and they're uh, uncannily close in many ways. But having done that, you then had a situation in which you had a, an island which was which was essentially divided between a population that was loyal through religion to the English crown and a population that was hostile through religion, Catholic religion in their case, to to um, the the English the English crown. And you had the basis there of um, a, a, a thrust for independence, resentment of being occupied 
justified and periodic attempts to overthrow English rule, which started in the in the six in the seventeenth century and again in the eighteenth century, most notably with the United Irishmen. Again, in the middle of the nineteenth uh, century, this time with American help and the Fenians. Again, in nineteen twelve and, and sorry, nineteen sixteen, nineteen twenty one. Ireland was then partitioned. The solution to the problem, as far as the English was concerned, and they more or less got their way, was to divide Ireland into two parts. One where you would have the native Irish would be able to control their own areas, but the north would remain under British control. And uh, you therefore would have still that buffer uh, against any mischief making uh, in, in, in the direction of, of England. Um, that uh settlement that solution in quote marks lasted until the latter part of the 1960s when you had a, a rising a new uh burgeoning catholic young population the product of the welfare state that had been created in england uh, and which obviously was applied elsewhere uh after the war after the second world war the welfare state free education university education People who were before that kept in poverty now had a chance of earning a decent living. And they were living in a society which they were not allowed, just like the blacks in America were not allowed to develop in the way that they wanted and to express themselves and to become what they wanted to become. And they were deprived of political rights, for example, the right to vote in many cases, um, the right to have decent housing, right to fair employment, and no discrimination. So, similar sort of you know, demands, and I wouldn't want to make the comparisons, uh, you know, all that closely to the black experience in America, which was much, much worse than anything that happened in Ireland. Um, but they are, they have similar points of similarity. So that's the, the seed of the troubles, essentially. Thank you for that. And uh, of course, there are so many other things in that history that uh, deserve further unpacking and, and uh, explanation. Um, which, again, you do that throughout your work. Um, so, uh, again, I encourage listeners to check out Mr. Maloney's work. Um, but that very quick uh, recapulation of, of Irish history into the Troubles, um, in speaking about your book, The Secret History of the IRA, um, you chose to open, which is about the Troubles, right? And you chose to open the book with a, uh, a harrowing tale about a shipment of weapons that the IRA received from Libya, but that was intercepted and busted by the authorities um, in October 1987, uh, a ship called the Exxon. Um, now, I'm, I'm curious, uh, well, what I really like about that story, how you open the book, is that it encapsulates so many um, tropes, if you will, that repeated throughout the Troubles and Irish history, uh, transatlantic gun running, clandestine movements, terrorism, intelligence wars. Um, but you wrote, could you briefly uh, describe that, that, well, could you tell me, well, why did you choose that that particular story to open this chronological tale of the troubles with? Well, because first of all, because no one knew until I wrote about it that there had been uh, an informer at work 
in relation to that shipment, right? Uh, to, to sort of briefly tell the story of the relationship between Libya and, and, and the IRA, Gaddafi came to power in Libya more or less at the same time as the provost came into existence in the autumn of 1969. And he was a Nasserite. He, he followed this, the gospel of Arab nationalism, which had been uh, established by uh, Nasser in, in Egypt. And he was, um, you know, and Libya was a country which had been occupied by foreign powers from the Roman Empire onwards, you know, in the latter. Uh, part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century by the Turkish Ottoman Empire. Uh, and then after the First World War by the British, and then after the Second World War, uh, it, uh, it, sorry, it was occupied again before the Second World War by the Italians, by Mussolini. After the Second World War, there wasn't an actual occupation, but the uh, three victorious powers, the main powers in the uh, fighting the, the war against the Nazis, established um, areas of influence in, in, uh, in Libya. The Americans had the area around Tripoli, and they had a huge uh, base there, Wheeler's base, which they used to, um, you know, to keep an eye on um, the Soviet southern flank. The, the British had the uh, eastern part around Benghazi, and the French had the southern part of uh, Libya down by Chad, which is one, which was one of their important and um, wealthy colonies. So after the Second World War, they were occupied until uh, the Gaddafi Revolution, essentially in, in all but name by by Britain, America, and and France. And there was a, a king who was a king and a ruler in really in name only called Idris. Uh, he was overthrown by Gaddafi, who was inspired, as I said, by the Nasserite revolution in Egypt. And, uh, you know, he automatically his, his sympathies were to the IRA and he, he reached out to them and they reached back. And that began a very long relationship which lasted from 1969 all the way through to almost to Gaddafi's overthrow. But uh, this particular point that we're talking about was one of the high points. And it all um, happened as a direct result of the uh, Thatcher and Reagan assault against Gaddafi. And you might remember there was an attempt to kill uh, Gaddafi with a, a US bombing mission, which uh, took off from British airfields. Air, air and that um, uh, infuriated Gaddafi and inspired him to really step up his assistance to the IRA. And uh, they, they agreed uh, with the IRA to send over as much weaponry as they could to make life of Thatcher as, as difficult and as awkward as possible as an act of revenge for attacking, attacking Gaddafi. And you've got to remember, of course, that one of his adopted children was killed in the raid that, that Reagan launched against, against Tripoli. So he had a personal reason for, for doing this. Um, and a number of those uh, uh, shipments had got through. You know, they had been small shipments at first to see if they could do it, see if they could uh, escape the attentions of the uh, in intelligence agencies because that's an area of the world that's under intense surveillance by the British, by the Americans, and by the Israelis. So the chances of getting a even a small shipload of, of arms through would be pretty slim. But they managed to get four shiploads of, of weapons, mostly in small, sort of like a boats that were a wee bit uh, smaller, wee, wee bit smaller than a, than a freight ship, but larger than a, a, a trawler, if you like. And there were significant amounts of weaponry came in. The largest amounts of weaponry the IRA had been able to smuggle in in one go. But the final uh, shipment on the Claudia 
was going to be the big one. This was going to be all the heavy weaponry that the IRA had never really been able to get its hands on. Mm-hmm. SAM-7 missiles, heavy machine guns, um, and stuff like that. I mean, really quite sophisticated material. And this was going to be used for the basis of um, a major offensive. They called the they modeled it on the uh, Vietnamese uh, uh, offensive against the American government in when was it 1969 I think yeah the Tet offensive the yeah. yeah and it was called they called it the Tet offensive with the IRA's Tet offensive mm. so it's very important for them that the weaponry got through now up, up until I did my research and, and wrote the book all we knew about this um, shipment was that it seemed to have been intercepted entirely by accident that this was an old freighter that they were using it wasn't you know in the best of shape and off the coast of France uh, the propeller stopped working right so it uh, stalled and the French seemingly this is the story that we were told sent out uh, customs to investigate and lo and behold lo and behold what did they find that they discovered that um, this was a boat full of arms and so it seemed that by bad luck, the IRA um, expedition had uh, had failed um, for that reason, for no other reason. Well, I was able to show that actually, no, there was an informer on the job, someone on the IRA side. And who that informer was has been a, you know, a matter of a great speculation. And it set the, the, the scene, if you like, for a story which was also about internal divisions inside the IRA over which direction they were they were taking um, and there were two camps there was the militarist camp which wanted to continue the war and there was the camp led by Adams and McGuinness which um, was moving very much in a political direction wanted to end the war um, come to some sort of political arrangement and deal and settlement with with the British and the Irish governments and uh, and change their strategy entirely to one of, of politics, the electoral politics mostly. And, you know, there are all sorts of suggestions that the informer um, came from that side of that side of the IRA, if you like, that the information was passed on to the British uh, in some way uh, by that side of the debate inside inside the IRA. So it was, I thought it was very, very important to, to establish, first of all, that the, the accident was not lost by by chance or by mischance or by accident or by mechanical fla- failure or anything like that, but it had been lost because there'd been a trader inside the IRA who had uh, who had, who had told them, told the authorities about uh, the British authorities about what was happening, and that set the scene for what became a very very complex and um, still debated story about how the IRA. Uh, ended its war, how the peace process in Ireland happened, and what the truth was. So that's why I, that's why I began the book with that. First of all, it was a story no one had heard before. Secondly, it was of of huge importance in framing framing the rest of the story, which was about the end of the IRA's campaign. Mm, yeah, it was a great beginning. And uh, the let's talk about that a little bit. The this uh, revelation uh, and the continued revelations of the fact that the IRA had uh, been, especially towards the end, completely saturated with informers and agents of different organizations from MI5 to Special Branch to the Irish police, even the FBI, 
I mean, there were even uh, some uh, East Germans who one time wanted to infiltrate the IRA to get information and stuff like that. Like entering this clandestine world, um, the where by 1988, uh, you mentioned one time that uh, was it one in three or one in four IRA members were, uh, you know, agents of some kind towards the end. Well, that, that's that's an estimate that I've seen. Um, but, but can I just say one thing, by the way? I noticed you 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 held up the book there. That yeah. is the very first edition. Yes. There's a second edition. There's a, there's a second edition of the book. Okay. Uh, which is um, which includes stuff that I was not able, for all sorts of source reasons, to to include in that in that edition. So if people wanted like a fuller story, uh, and also about the accent, because I, there was stuff about the accent I couldn't use in that in the first edition, which I did okay. in the second edition. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you know they should they should look for the second edition rather than the first edition. Okay. Okay. Um, sorry, what was your question again? What well, was your it was, it, yeah, it, it was basically, um, let's, well, so let's look at this notion of the informers then within the mm. IRA, right? And yeah. as you mentioned about the Exxon story, um, no one ever really found out exactly who that particular informer was, but they had uh, inclinations that perhaps it was coming from Northern Command, right? Somewhere in Northern Command. Uh, high, possibly higher than that. Uh, who wow. knows? I mean, you know, the, de the details about the excellent and the Libyan adventure um, uh, were supposed to be, you know, at the very, very top of the IRA. This was an operation that was being run primarily by the Army Council, which is the ruling body, seven men and uh, a few other people who are seconded to the Army Council. Uh, maybe, you know, nine people altogether, uh, mostly men. Um, uh, but, you know, the IRA being the IRA, being very gossipy and what have you, you know, a lot of people knew something was happening at the same time, you know. But you've got to remember, you know, this was um, a war that had been going on for an awful long time by that stage. This was 19, what was it, 1987. Um, the, the war was already like nearly 20 years old by that stage. Well, you know, um, you, you run an organization like that for 20 years. You you're, hang on a sec, let me just kill okay. this. No problem. Okay. Um, you know, you're bound to have, um, you're bound to have an informer problem. And to, ex to give an example of how bad it was, uh, at, at a quite an early stage in, in the IRA's development, after the first couple of years of um, sort of, um, hang on, sorry about this. No problem. There we are. Um, after the first couple of years or so of the of the of the RA's campaign, it, it was really you know um, it really wasn't. They thought the war was only going to last two or three years, and they would either win or they would lose. But then they ended up having to fight this very very long war. And once they realized that, people people particularly like Jerry Adams realized, you know, you needed to have a mechanism inside the IRA to counter efforts by the British to infiltrate you, right, through either MI5, which is the sort of equivalent of the FBI in Britain, except it's more secret, or the, the, the police special branch. Um, I, I don't know if there's an equivalent to that in the United States, but this is a, the police force in, in Britain and also in Ireland, which is entirely political, mostly dealing with what they regard as subversives and what have you. Mm. Um, 
and they're almost like a separate police force, like a secret police, if you like, okay? So these people were hell-bent on infiltrating you and, and causing you as much damage as, damage as possible. And so they set up um, uh, a unit inside the IRA to monitor the informer problem, to seek out informers, to catch them and kill them, and, and counter as much as they could the counterintelligence efforts of the, of the British and the Irish governments. And the guy who eventually became head of the, um, the anti-informer unit, uh, a guy called Freddy Scappatici, and he's got an Italian name because a lot of uh, Italians came over to Ireland in the latter part of the 19th century, mm -hmm. and quite a few of them settled in Belfast, and of course they were, they were Catholics, and they identified with the local Catholic population, and um, Freddy Scappatici was a member of, the, of a family which was uh, long, had quite a long re reputation of being involved in the IRA, and mm -hmm. uh, he, was, he was obviously an IRA activist himself, but he ended up being a, a more or less the head of the, this uh, uh, anti-spy, anti-informer uh, unit. But he was also he was also a spy for the British. Well, mm -hmm. if you have someone at that level of your organization who's working for the other side, he knows all your secrets. He knows he knows everyone who's in the IRA because, as the head of the anti-informer unit, he had you know if something something happened that shouldn't have happened, he would, sent to, he would be sent along with his minions to investigate it. And they would know who was involved in this area or that area, what they did, who was in charge of this and who was in charge of that. They would have a, a complete picture of the IRA from, from a, a character like that. And they would know, for example, that certain, op they might know, once they started recruiting people, they would know that when certain operations were gonna happen, they would catch the people and maybe turn them send them back into the IRA informers. So, you know, it, it was a very, very long war like that, uh, which was, you know, regarded by um, people who dreamt up the concept of a long war as this was the way that they were going to win the war by, by outlasting the British, was actually a point of weakness for them, right? Because um, it, it, it enabled the British to infiltrate them. So, you know, the, these, uh, these estimates, you know, one in four or whatever it was of the organization being uh, being infiltrated and being members of the of the uh, of the country of of, um, of working for British intelligence, I think, are entirely credible because of that. You know, so uh, you know the accident was was caught. Was that because you know so many people knew about it, or was it because there was a traitor at an even higher level, someone like the Army Council level? Um, that's the sort of question that's raised as a result of the accident. It's a very dark question, and it's going to be debated for a very, very long time. Um, that's the that's the the importance of that episode. Mm. And it's still a question that's unresolved. Uh, Twenty three yes. years after the Good Friday Agreement was signed, um, it's just it's still a dark cloud that looms over you know, Irish Republicanism and the quote unquote, the North of Ireland in general, um, you know, a lot of progress has been made since 1998. Uh, but as anyone who follows what has gone on, it's still very tense and, uh, you know, uh, what do they call it? A powder keg of friction. Um, mm -hmm. And of course the whole Brexit debacle uh, you know, unleashed old 
prejudices in the British press and et cetera, et cetera, which is really sad to see. Um, but um, you mentioned there about the creation of, uh, you know, what I guess became known as the Nutter Squad. Yeah, Scapatici and his his crew. Mm. Um, the the that coming out of uh, being birthed in uh, Long Cash Prison when Jerry Adams and Brendan Hughes and Ivor Bell uh, and a few other fellas there created the plan to rescue the IRA, um, which like you also then said in the book was also a plan perhaps as a way for Jerry Adams to take over the movement, right? Um, and um, the, which I guess in and of itself, well, that's a whole other thing to unpack and you've covered Jerry Adams's career very well. Um, but uh, just to give a ground to that plan, you know, that's where they created the, the active service unit uh, plan, which consisted of, uh, you know, as you wrote, small secret four, three or four men cells uh, that the, the, the operators, the on the ground people didn't really know about other cells, um, which was different than the past which was full of large battalions and flying uh, uh, companies and things, flying columns and stuff like that. Um, and Adam specifically created this plan of basically a top-down sort of panopticon knowledge, like a, like a pyramid where every cell would, they would know about what they were doing. They'd get information from the top, but they wouldn't know about what other stuff's happening outside. Yet those on the army council would know everything. And then some like the squad, the Nutter squad were able to, that ASU was able to move freely through all the other ASUs and get all the information they wanted. Yeah. Um, is that is that correct? Is that a good way to-, to Yeah, ex except, you know, if, in practice, it didn't quite work out like that because uh, although the theory was good that you, you know, you have these secret cells and no one else would know who was in the cell except cell members and so on and so forth. It, you know, Belfast is a very small town, really, you know, and the north of Ireland is a very small place. And uh, the number of people who are actually involved in the IRA is not a great number, you know, it's never more than two or three hundred at, at the most, you know, uh, really. It'd be a, like they were the sort of the, the peak of the, uh, the iceberg and the rest of the iceberg was, was under the water, literally. Um, but, you know, Everyone knew who was in the IRA in these areas, you know. So even if you set up something that's supposed to be super, super secret, it wouldn't be super secret for very long. And indeed, that was <laughs> one of the problems, you know. The, the, it was it sounded great in theory, but in practice, it it didn't really work out very well. Right. So it was just too easy to penetrate then with the top-down structure like that. Um, yeah. At the same time, though, you know, it took it took a long, long time for the British to get on top of the IRA. You know, and this is like this is really quite remarkable because it's such a small place, really. You know, um, and and um, you know, the population is very small. The, the geographical area is very small, and yet it took the British like so long to get a, a real handle on it. You know, um, and that's remar quite remarkable, really, when you think about it. You know? Right on. Um, so, uh, swerving back over to Gaddafi for a moment, um, you know, since his death, obviously more has come out about how much wheeling and dealing this guy did on the international level, right? Uh, even though he wanted to wage war and kill Thatcher and take down the British empire, only a few years after 
him giving all these weapons to the IRA, he, he made nice with the British in the early yeah. to mid 90s. And then part of his deal with the British was he handed over all the information that he got from the IRA to the British. Mm -hmm. You yeah, think that's that played right. any yeah. part in helping the the British uh, eventually kind of basically? Well, you know, you you got to yeah, but at the same time as Gaddafi was playing nice to the British, so was the IRA. You know, I mean, uh, Blair was jetting over to Tripoli to uh, sit in Gaddafi's tent and sip coffee, <clears throat> and the next week he'd be um, hosting Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness in Downing Street. You know, so what's the difference? You know, um, yeah, sure. I mean, you know. They, they, the, the Libyans obviously they they told the British a lot of what they'd done. They gave them a full manifest of um, the the arms that they had sent over, right? So the British knew when it came to decommissioning whether the IRA had given everything up or not, you know, which was very important for them. Okay, um, the IRA. One of the conditions that the that the Libyans uh, imposed at the start of the excellent um, adventure or chapter, if you want to call it, was that um, uh, all of those involved, small number of people who were involved in um, going over to Libya and choosing the weaponry and making the logistical arrangements with the Libyans, they had to hand over all their IDs and, and passports, what have you, to the Libyans, who obviously photocopied them. So they had a full record of who the IRA people involved in, in uh, that, that particular part of the uh, relationship, who they were, and they handed all that information over to the British as well. But I'm sure that was not something that was a terrible, great secret for the British by that stage, you know, because um, they, as I say, they clearly had a very good information about the Libyan adventure. Um, there, were, there were so many instances of people from the Army Council, Martin McGuinness in particular, meeting uh, other IRA leaders at a much lower level, but still leaders in their own areas, and telling them about this, this, this uh, plan to bring all the weapons over. And of course, those people went, went home and they gossiped, you know, and they talked. And, you know, I remember hearing about, and this is long, long before the peace process and long before, uh, you know, I would even dream about writing a book like The Secret History of the IRA, hearing about, you know, there was this big plan for a Tet Offensive and stuff like that, and it never happened, and we never worked out why it didn't happen, or why it didn't happen, we don't know. It might have been this, might have been that. But enough was known about this highly secret thing at the lower level. It would have been remarkable for the British not to have known about it, you know? They certainly did know about it. Gotcha. And, um, you know, one thing I always wonder about the Troubles, um, you know, it, it was a conflict uh, that occurred during the Cold War, right? Mm. And, um, you know, like you said, early on in the Troubles, 1972, the IRA thought that it would be a two or three year war, which is pretty much what the War of Independence was. It was a two year war, 1919-1921. Um, you I just kind of wonder about what sort of effect, overlying effect that this Cold War mentality that has basically this clandestine uh, approach to everything that has happened since World War II, you know, what sort of effect that had on the troubles, you know? So what do you mean now? Well, like, so for instance, um, where was the CIA during all this stuff? You know, the FBI in America, you know, they were always supposedly, they were monitoring 
the, the Irish Republicans even before further back than the late 70s, right? They, the Irish Republicans have been monitored in America since the 1940s. I have, I have notes from J. Edgar Hoover, you know, sending word to British in, uh, intelligence about monitoring Irish Republicans in America since the 40s. Mm. We know that the mm. feds have been on the case. But where has mm. the CIA been during all of this stuff? You know, I wonder. Where's Guy who? The CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. What what were they doing during this whole time? You know. Well, who who knows? I mean, that's that's part of the story we don't know about. You know, clearly. But I, I would imagine that um, since since the since the since the IRA was involved in um, with, with Gaddafi and also with other uh, Arab groups, other Palestinian groups, for example, and they weren't they weren't the only Irish group that was involved in. In, in, in the Middle East, you know, the INLA was also involved with with um, sections of the Palestinian um, uh, resistance to Israel. You know, um, that they were bound to have have had an interest in there, but um, you know, that, that has not yet emerged. I imagine one one day it may emerge. You know, but I, I guess even so, it wouldn't have been like at the anywhere near the top of the CIA's agenda in the Middle East at all. It would have been. Yeah, you know, we'll keep an eye on this and let the Brits, you know, than anything else. Maybe there are instances or were instances where they actually were operationally involved, I, but I, it hasn't hasn't yet emerged, you know. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, and so okay. uh, we're about forty minutes in. Ed, uh, you have time for a couple more questions? Surely, go ahead. Go okay. Ahead. Um, so. Well, it's two sort of things. Um, well, one thing that I really find, I mean, it's one of the kind of tragedies of Irish history is the, um, well, a struggle to tell the story to the next generation. You know, when luckily mm -hmm. now there are history books, one can learn about Irish history that it's been a, it's, it's a constant, it's the same thing. It's in comes the British imperialism and the resistance against it for hundreds of years, that's the story, you know, um, for the most part. Uh, yet, you know, this, and, and the, the, the type of uh, obviously brutality that was directed at the Irish for hundreds of years, part of it always to control people is you, 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 you strip them of their language, you strip them of their culture, you strip them of their history, and then you try to, you know, reconstruct them. And that, that's been the constant struggle of, of, of regaining the knowledge of history, right? And um, in, uh, the War of Independence, after the War of Independence, there were a number of Irish writers or people who interviewed the soldiers who fought. Um, this is extremely important to be done for the Troubles. Uh, and as you know firsthand, how much resistance there is towards telling this story. You know, why is that? Why is there still, it's to the point where even, you know, older Irish Republicans won't even tell the younger generation details because they don't want to get in trouble still, you know? So what is the struggle to just, just, you know, tell Irish history, this, this brand of Irish history? Well, as you say, I mean, there are people opposed to that, right? There are the authorities, uh, as, as you know, from the Boston College story, right? Uh, move against, people who tell their stories and try to prosecute them. Um, but they're not the only ones who are, you know, resisting this idea of, of truth telling and what have you. The, the IRA leadership itself 
uh, you know, is, is adamantly opposed to people doing this sort of stuff. Um, I mean, Jerry Adams has created an entire fist fiction about his own life. He's never been in the IRA. You know, uh, that's his version of events. Uh, you know, some, but somehow he managed to be this person of extraordinary influence. The truth is, of course, he was at near or at the top of the IRA for most of the time that he was involved, you know, from the, you know, 1968, 69 onwards. Um, so there's a disapproval there, disapproval from the, from the point of view that if you turn a blind eye to people telling their own stories, well, you know, how can you control that? Because goodness knows where it will end up. There might be bits and pieces of stories that you would rather were never told and I'm given one example tonight, which is the whole story about the Exxon, the whole story about informers and stuff like that. You know, um, you know, one of the dark theories about the informers is that it actually suited people in, in the leadership in the IRA to have informers like that. Okay, because um, if you wanted to move the IRA in a more political, non-military direction, then it served your interest. To undermine the military campaign, for example, right? These are very dangerous thoughts to have if you're in an organization like that. And so they are, you know, they are squashed. They are prevented uh, from telling their stories and disapproved of, you know, if they do, and get into all sorts of trouble if they do. I mean, you know, one of the great things that we were worried about during the Boston College thing was that it um, wasn't so much that the British would find out about it, it was that the provost would find out about it, you know? And if the provost found out what we were doing, then they would hunt these people out and kill them. You know, mm. uh, the British might try to put them in jail, but the provost would kill them. That was the problem. You know, um, funnily enough, the loyalists didn't have that problem at all. Uh, mm. They didn't really care that much. Uh, but on the Republican side, which led me to believe actually that the provost leadership had much more to hide in terms of their own history and their own, own doings than than the loyalists had. You know, mm. uh, which I think is true. So lastly, uh, where are we at today? Where Where is, um, yeah, what's the vibe of Irish Republicanism in, in, in Ireland, America, England today? What What do you foresee? <laughs> what do you foresee? Well, I don't know. We're, we're at one of these points where we don't know. We don't know where it's going to mm. um, You know, some of the stuff I read seems to me to be hopelessly optimistic, you know? Uh, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe there is reason for optimism in terms of like you know there's going to be a you know uh, a great move for a united ireland i honestly don't see it myself you know um because i you know i know i know the place i know the, the union's population quite well and um you know just because of brexit you know i don't think they're going to change their minds all that much because the differences are much more fundamental than that they go back go back to that plantation that we talked about at the very start of this, you know, the fear of, um, of on the Protestant side, fear of being basically exterminated, if you like, politically or even, even uh, in a human sense, you know. Um, and on the other side, you have the, the feeling of nationalists that they will never, ever get a square deal whenever the unionists are in power. Mm. Uh, so there's a constant, there'll be a constant fight and constant battle between them. So I, I, I don't know. We're on one of those points in history where we can't tell really with much clarity 
what's going to happen. But we we never were at any point like that in the last thirty years, really. So there's no no difference in that, you know. Uh, but what I can say is, with, with absolute uh, um, certainty, is that the quality of journalism, quality of um, coverage of what's going on there, has 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 um, deteriorated to a, uh, an astonishingly bad bad degree, you know. Um, but I'm out of it now, so I can I can't really complain. Well, thank you for that. Like many things with the troubles, okay. it's a, a fairly troubling foresight, but there's still glimmers of hope. All right, what a podcast that was. Big thank you to Ed Maloney for joining me, taking the time out, speaking with me about his work, especially that great, fantastic book, The Secret History of the IRA. That is a great book, man. Highly recommended across the board. If you want a stocking stuffer for someone you love this year, go out and buy that book, The Secret History of the IRA by Ed Maloney. And hey, if you want to stay up to date with uh, what Mr. Maloney is up to these days, feel free to check out his website, thebrokenelbow.com. That's uh, thebrokenelbow.com. And also for everyone out there who's curious about where I'm at with Chapel Perilous, very happy to say that the uh, the book has been accepted by my publisher, Strange Attractor slash MIT Press. And I'm working with the editor right now to get the final, final draft together so we can get the book out to you guys at sometime in 2023. So that's going to be a big year. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out some of my writings about Robert Anton Wilson, and uh, some commentary on Robert Anton Wilson's work, please check out my website, chapelperilous.us, for more information on that. And uh, that about wraps it up for me here, folks. As the holidays approach, I hope everyone is doing well, is uh, safe around loved ones, and having a great time. Until next time, I'll see you. Peace. <laughs>